caucus, first day of confirmation hearings for Judge Brett Kavanaugh. We cannot possibly move forward, Mr. Chairman. I extend this a very warm welcome we to Judge Kavanaugh. We have not been given an opportunity to have a meaningful his wife, hearing Ashley, on this nominee. There are two daughters. Mr. Chairman, I agree with my colleague, Senator Harris. Mr. Chairman, if, if we cannot be recognized, I move to adjourn. Confirmation hearings for Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Enter day two. Judge Brett Kavanaugh was pressed today in issues from abortion to presidential power. Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed many times. President uh, Trump claims he has an absolute right to pardon himself, does he? Uh, the question of self-pardons is something I've never analyzed. It's a hypothetical question that I can't begin to answer in this context. And I stand by the public's right to have access to this document and know this nominee's views on issues that are so profoundly important. Any senator, officer, or employee of the Senate who shall disclose the secret or confidential business or proceedings of the Senate shall be liable to suffer expulsion from the body. Then apply Mr. the rule Chairman. and bring the charges. Mr. Bring. Chairman. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. As you just heard, it's been a big legal week in D.C., Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has been facing Congress this week during a series of confirmation hearings. And things have been explosive, with drama over documents, protests, and plenty of talk about big issues like abortion and gun control. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by senior reporter Michael McInerney, who's been in the hearings all week and can break down all the action. And later, we'll wrap things up by talking about a prolific Dine-and-Dash dater who may have to pick up the tab of some legal bills. But first, I'm with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. You could call me a legal bill. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. We're going to start using that now. (laughs) Off to a a wonderful start here. (laughs) Um, I wanted to start, before we get in, there's a lot of news as you laid out, Amber. Um, I did just want to take a step back and recall that bit of sage wisdom from the 2000 coming-of-age bartender film Coyote Ugly. Sure. Which taught us you can't fight the moonlight. Right. But apparently you can fight. Really uh, paints, paints an image of New York, that movie. It's true. Yeah. But you, what you can fight is the appointment uh, of a Supreme Court justice. And the reason I bring this up is because we're going to talk a little bit about all the protesters who have been at the Kavanaugh hearings. Among those protesters is the actress Piper Perabo. Did you guys see that? Wow, I, I missed that. Yeah, from Coyote Ugly, uh, she apparently. I mean, was she the main woman? Yeah, in Coyote yeah, Ugly? yeah. Violet, also, Violet Sanford, well known from Covert Affairs, which but is a USA show that you don't I hear much about the her whole thing. Yeah, these and days. I did sort of a because she was back in the news a little bit. I did like a, she's apparently a very uh, outspoken left wing activist about you know reproductive issues and voter suppression and some other things. And she like literally Bar regulations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she was in she was in the room and got thrown out at one point during the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, but like you say, she's, I mean, she's sort of chosen to walk this path in her life. I will say when I first saw Coyote, I think I was in high school when that movie came out. Mm-hmm. I was convinced. I was like, this is, this is Julia Roberts right now. Oh, right. Like this, like, per- next this person sure. is like going to blow up. Did you guys ever have any, did you ever like squat on any takes like that? Taylor Kitsch from Taylor Kitsch. Friday Night Lights. So yeah. I was a big Friday Night Lights fan. 
Tim Riggins. Yeah. Loved him. Sure. And and then there, he had a bunch of action roles. Yeah. And that's usually is a path to stardom. Yeah. So he was in Battleship. Battleship. John Carter. John, both both yep. bad. He was in a terrible X Men movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was he was the first Gambit. Yeah. yeah. So you you would imagine if you get cast in an X Men movie, you're gonna blow up. It's gonna be great. Those movies usually do it's well. Weird. It doesn't seem to correlate with that though, because there was the dude in Avatar. Seemingly was Sam, the, Sam yeah. Worthington. Yeah. Everybody yeah. thought was gonna blow up, yeah. and right. he never did anything yeah. again. And um. What's it called? Uh, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, think about it. Like, he was such a huge celebrity there for a little while after Jerry Maguire, and then Snow Dogs. Snow Dogs, you, you turn uh, the radio. You just never know, though, guys, because people can have, a, like, a, a renaissance in their career, like Matthew McConaughey. Well, and yeah. Cuba Gooding's coming back. He played OJ in the, um, oh, that's right. in the yeah. FX show, so he maybe, was, he's, yeah. maybe he's on the way back. Well, here's a, here's a, here's a related question. Did you ever think... Did you ever, uh, you know, conceive of a maybe an insurance company that you were certain was going to go to trial <laughs> over a very explosive legal issue, but it just didn't come together for them? Like a good actor, State Farm is there. <laughs> <laughs> you can pick up where we left off last week. Yeah, it's a story we talked about last week, sort of a crazy story that seems um, too weird to be true, right. but uh, came to a climactic close this week. Uh, State Farm agreed to pay a quarter of a billion dollars mm-hmm. to resolve this Wild lawsuit that claims it uh, effectively bought a state Supreme Court justice to get out from under this $1 billion jury verdict. And we talked about this just last week. As we said, you can listen to that in detail with Cara Salvatore, who ended up on hand for a, a pretty uneventful trial, right. as it, or not even a trial, yeah. as it turns out. But let's just, like, broad reset on, on, the, on the facts. Yeah. So it's sort of like a screenplay or like a John Grisham novel. Yeah. Um, but way back in 97... Um, State Farm was sued with this class action, pretty mundane stuff that they were like, uh, they were telling body shops to use cheaper parts. And, you know, it's sort of boring, but but really costly for the company. It ended up with this billion dollar verdict for violating state consumer fraud. And a class of like five five million people. That explains how it got to such a high number. There were a ton of people in the class. Exactly. So they appeal and they appeal and they appeal and they eventually appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court. But the case wasn't going to be decided until 2005 after an election was held to fill this vacant seat on the court. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get into the juicy allegations of this lawsuit that we're talking about this week. Right. According to the plaintiffs, State Farm handpicked their own judge, um, this guy Lloyd Carmeyer, um, to run for an open seat, the open seat on on the court, and used... You know, secretly funneled money toward his campaign. They used um, advocacy groups that didn't disclose their donors um, to help his campaign. And the the ultimately the campaign was the most expensive ever run for a for a state judicial spot. It was like nine point three million dollars right. were were given in campaign donations. Mm-hmm. And the effort by State Farm worked out. Carmeyer won. Um, and after some dispute over whether or not he had to recuse himself from this case. Uh, the Illinois State Supreme Court overturned that billion-dollar verdict against State Farm. So after years of appeals and efforts to reverse that decision, the plaintiffs ended up filing this new case that we're talking about this week that claimed that the whole secret campaign effort to get this new judge on the court violated the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, you know, the thing we all know from from prosecuting mobsters. Yeah, so super interesting case. So Cara was obviously very excited to cover this. Um, We talked about it last week at length. And then a little bit of a whimper. What what turned out this week? So we were going to go to a jury trial this week. Um, 
State Farm, to be clear here, has always denied any wrongdoing whatsoever, saying that Carmeier didn't know about the contributions and that the plaintiffs couldn't meet the tough standards they had to meet to prove this case. But the case made it through a, a motion for summary judgment. We were headed toward a trial this week. Um, opening statements were set for Tuesday, and Carmeier, who is now the chief justice of the Illinois State Supreme Court, um, was due to be the one of the very first witnesses. Which is wild. So, the, the idea of a, of a state Supreme Court justice yes. like in the witness box yes. is, yeah, is it, wild it stuff. Been crazy. So we were geared up for, for a lot of drama. We got a different type of drama on <laughs> Tuesday uh, when State Farm agreed to pay $250 million to, to settle the case. Yeah. Um, thereby avoiding trial. Um, The company admitted no wrongdoing and they sort of went through all the reasons why they didn't do anything wrong again. But isn't it funny how we're talking about this like it's a disappointment because it was supposed to be a billion dollar trial, but that's still a huge number. $250 million is nothing to sneeze at here. It's a big deal. And it's less than what the plaintiffs wanted. They wanted multiple billions of dollars um, uh, because under RICO, you can, there's the treble damages and everything else. But yeah, that was my read of it. That you know, when we talked about this last week, it we see a lot of lawsuits that make outrageous claims that that say all sorts of wacky stuff. We're going to see one later in this very show. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But the th- thing that made this different was that this, like we said, made it to trial, and so it was sort of the the, the two hundred and fifty million dollars. State Farm will will die to tell you that it means nothing. That yeah, that yeah. we weren't admitting fault. We were sure. trying to get this off our books. But you don't pay a quarter of a billion dollars over nothing. So it's in a case where we were looking for, you know, it's too crazy to believe and we were looking for what for legitimacy. The fact that it ended in a $250 million settlement sort of speaks for itself. Yeah. Well, as Amber said at the top, we're obviously going to spend a lot of time talking about the Brett Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearing. But there was other action in D.C. this week that on any other week probably would have been top political news, and um, we'll talk about it right now. Um, there was uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg were testifying before both House and Senate committees talking yeah. about um, a wide variety of things, but it's about, you know, sort of the, the intersection of tech and social media with, um, you know, their free speech uh, obligations, such as they are, and just their overall role in the political discourse now. It was interesting stuff. Well, there's a lot of things in that bucket, Alex. Yeah. So, like, what exactly did they dig into here? Well, as you, I mean, if you're reading the news, you know what's going on. Um, basically, everybody is pissed off at the tech companies now. Um, Democrats are very mad because they feel that both Twitter and, to a greater extent, Facebook were used as basically propaganda outfits to elect a Republican president that they don't, that is particularly unpopular sure. right now. Um, on the other side, in recent weeks and months, there has been an up, uh, sort of a rift among the right because they feel as an overcorrective to that first problem now, Twitter and Facebook uh, and Google are beginning to stifle conservative voices. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, you hear about shadow banning, which is sort of like, you know, bumping them down in search algorithms and things like that. So everyone was mad about that. They're talking about those rules that they have in place. Also, still under under the umbrella of election security, because we've got midterms right. coming up. Sure. And that's related, right? Because it's like, how is political speech conducted on sure. your platform? And this comes after Zuckerberg was on the Hill a yeah. few months ago. Um, I feel like there's just a bigger, you know, sort of a broad question of how these giant monopolist companies should be should be regulated yeah yeah yeah. and 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 they were talking they were very candid about that both dorsey and sandberg took grilling from i think it was the house energy and commerce committee and then the senate intelligence committee and they both 
really leaned into the idea or, or to the to the notion that they that they and their companies have made mistakes. You know, Twitter has the whole um, proliferation of neo Nazis uh, on their platform. With, as as Indiana Jones once said, hate those guys. Hate those guys. <laughs> yeah, um, and just sort of a very op- like like hard to decipher policy for banning people and right. like re- regulating exactly what you're allowed to say on there. Facebook is of course in the midst of dealing with fake news and like what per- what is on that platform, how it's the, the it, well it's well, an, yeah. We all, we often talk about on this show just how hard it is to get Congress involved in this kind of stuff because this is right in that sweet spot we talk about a lot where technology meets what Congress can do and how those things are Congress is often behind the yeah. times and yeah. how to make this work. It, it becomes really thorny. Well, well, and in the case, especially especially in Facebook, but Twitter as well, like it's it's just the company's so massive, and like Bill says, it's this monolith in the culture that it's like it exists both still as a site where your aunt says where she's going to lunch, and where like the New York Times like has an incentive to publish like its most explosive stories right. for yes. public consumption. That that all exists in one umbrella, and it's an awkward fit. So anyway, Jack Dorsey of Twitter basically said like. We've we've all but frozen our verification process. Like we're, we're that's and that of course like deals with like how they label which users are to be trusted. Right, for lack like of a the better verified. Term. Thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they they've all but frozen that while they undergo an audit. Facebook is still working on labeling like misleading news or like you know giving you warnings before you post things from dubious sources and things like that. Um, and they're still and they're trying to get out ahead of that stuff. And that's what they were talking about with with Congress. So what? Um what were the what were the lawmakers themselves saying about this? You yeah, know, were... I mean it's a it's a congressional hearing, so it's always more about right the 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 act of asking the questions rather <laughs> yeah. than getting. I mean it's not this is not sort of exhausting at times. Very very preliminary step in the in the legislative process, uh, if at all. But um, so yeah, we got more questions than answers. There's a broad acknowledgement that something should be done. That the 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 companies themselves say that. Interestingly enough, they were more than happy to ask for government assistance when they were talking specifically about election security. They were mm-hmm. like, well, we would love for the government to help us, you know, vet out hackers or bad actors or whatever. When it comes to their own rules about content moderation right. or whatever, n- no one's really that excited about saying, oh, come regulate me, daddy. Like, <laughs> sure. you know, it's all this stuff. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, there's lots of issues. You always run into First Amendment stuff, even though they're private corporations. Um, Senator Richard Burr is a Republican from North Carolina, kind of put a nice button on the whole proceedings at the close of the Senate hearing where he said, there is no clear and easy path forward. We understand the problem and it is a First Amendment issue. We cannot regulate around the First Amendment, but we also cannot ignore the challenge. I am confident that working together we can find a solution and a path forward that will only make us stronger, more connected, and more prepared to face down those who seek to weaken our democracy. That all sounds uh, reasonable and very civilized, <laughs> yes. but it has been a wild week in Washington, and I know there were some some clips that came out of this that were pretty illuminating about the, the tone down there. I mean, for all I just said about the important dialogue that was going on, at at times, the thing was an absolute farce, yeah. um, which kind of just happens nowadays, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But both in and around the hearings, the first uh, the first one was at the House end of the, of the uh, uh, hearing pallet, uh, and it was in the middle of the hearing, conservative writer, advocate, provocateur, Laura Loomer, Basically, basically stood up and began to accuse uh, Jack Dorsey and Twitter of stifling conservative voices, like I just said. And in the clip you'll hear, uh, there's there, there's another voice you hear that begins to shout her down. That is not another crazy protester. That is the voice 
of Republican Congressman Billy Long from Missouri. And it's a, it's a bit of a lengthy exchange, but it's worth it. If you'll please take a seat or we'll have to have you. Then you'll need to relieve. Trump, help us. Please help us, Mr. President, before it is too late. Because Jack Dorsey is trying to influence the election, huh? to sway the election. What's she saying? I can't understand that. Officer, will you escort this young lady out, please? Hit two and a half now, five, sixty five, seven and a half, seventy. Up two and a half now, five, seventy five, seven and a half, eighty dollar to five, eighty five, ninety. Eight hundred dollar and a ten, 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 a quarter, one, a quarter, one, half, seven, five, two, two, two and a quarter. Hit two and a half, seven, five, three, equal to bomb, three hundred. Hit three and a quarter. Cut three and a quarter now, half, half, three and a half, seven, five, four hundred. Yeah, but a four, four and a quarter, four and a half. We're selling the cell phone there, four and a quarter, four and a half. Hit four and a half, four, seven, five, five hundred, five, five and a quarter, five and a half. I yield back. <laughs> Uh, that is, that's that's a just, really great. It just keeps clip. going. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was he was bordering on like driving the bit into the ground, and then and then had a nice little mic drop there at the end. So that was that was a Republican Billy Long, uh, you know, sort of at you know in, in his own way asking for a conservative advocate to be removed. So that yeah. was pretty funny. Um, the other one on the Senate end. Um, uh, this is not in the hearing. This is outside the hearing. There was a little press availability, a little scrum. Uh, with Marco Rubio from Florida, and if you've ever, if anyone's ever been to the Capitol, like you, like during press availabilities, everybody just goes right up to the lawmakers. There's no partition or sure. or barrier. They're just there, and they've got the microphones in their face. Uh, a couple minutes went by, and Rubio was approached by Alex Jones, um, who is the uh, <laughs> operator of Infowars, and by all, uh, by every public indication, a complete maniac. Yep. Um, was uh, ba- banned from YouTube and was like suspended from Twitter. So he's got a real axe to grind. Yeah. When it comes to this stuff, and it, w- what ensued was um, very curious indeed. Infowars.com. You, you know what it is. Does, well. does Google? Does Facebook? Does That's Twitter, why you get elected. Do they need to be regulated? Like, like, do they need to be regulated? Marco Rubio, the snake. <laughs> this is boy here. All right, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, who are you? Who yeah, is sure. this guy? I swear to God, I yeah, don't you know better who hope you are, man. Platforming. Tens of millions of views. Infowars. Bigger than Rush Limbaugh. He knows who Infowars well, is. But Playing you, this joke over here. That's why the deplatforming didn't work. But but, you, but here, here's here's the question. Here's the question. Wait, don't touch me again, man. I'm asking you not to touch me. Well, sure. I just patted you nicely. I know, but I don't want to be. I don't know. Well, you, you want me to get arrested? I don't know who you are. It's not just going to. You're not going to get arrested, man. You're not going to get arrested. I'll take care of it myself. Oh oh, he'll beat me up. I didn't say that. You know who I am, but he's so mad. You're not going to silence me. You're not going to silence me. But, but there are people. You are, like, you are literally like a little gangster thug. There are, there are people in this country. Rubio you know just threatened to physically uh, take care of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. That, that, that one really speaks for to itself. To be clear, this is the same guy who said we're putting stuff in the water that's turning the frogs gay. It's true. Uh, you yes. did say that. So yeah. mm-hmm. just, just a little useful piece of context. So, yeah. guys, I mean, that's the perfect clip for what I kind of want to pivot and talk about a bit with all of this. That... The idea of, quote unquote, fake news and conservatives being um, silenced by these big tech companies has led us to a lawsuit. Yeah. So a conservative nonprofit called Freedom Watch sued all the big ones, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Apple, for $1 billion. They allege they violated both antitrust statutes and also the First Amendment by censoring their conservative content. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like... You know, it's easy to get up in Congress and scream at people that that as some, we've seen yeah, and heard. Yes, <laughs> uh, but is there? I mean, is there like objective? Is there something that would hold up in court to to support this idea? Well, I think we should 
point out a couple things here. First, um, they point to Alex Jones that we just heard from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, as Alex said a few minutes ago, um, he was deleted. His YouTube channel was deleted. So right. they point to that as like a concrete action. And then they also reference something that our president tweeted because everything on this podcast circles back around to his tweets eventually. So the president put out a couple of lengthy tweets the day before this lawsuit was filed. And they were all about how if you searched on Google for the term Trump news, that it was quote unquote rigged and you only got bad news about (laughs) the president. Right. He called out CNN by name and some other stuff. And then he said, this part I'm quoting, 96% of results on Trump news are from national left-wing media, very dangerous. Google and others are suppressing voices of conservatives and hiding information and news that is good. So (laughs) it's a very specific claim there. Yeah, yeah. And that 96% figure actually shows up in this lawsuit. It's from a um, study by by PJ Media. It's a woman named Paula Bolliard. And... Her study worked like this. She basically just did a Google search on the news tab for Trump. Yeah. And she did it several times on a bunch of different computers so it couldn't be like cookies couldn't mess up like uh-huh. how it was appearing or whatever. And then she plotted these results on a so-called um, media bias chart. And that chart is basically splits outlets into left or right leaning. Yeah. I mean, and I've seen that. Like, yeah, they circulate on, on, the on, on Facebook of all this places. Seems, sure. This seems extremely scientific. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, yeah. So, just to give you some idea, on the left, it had things like the Associated Press, Reuters, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, NPR, Politico, USA Today, CNBC, like everyone you can think of. God, CNBC, a bastion of left wing <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. Well, and the AP for that matter. <laughs> right. I mean, what? So, then on the um, right, they had Wall Street Journal, Economist, Fox News. Daily Mail, Infowars, The Blaze, Drudge Report, Breitbart. You know what's funny in that whole like it, it, in that whole like Steve Bannon dust up the the Economist uh, basically uh, put out a statement saying like he, these are not the liberal values that we tend to uphold at this publication, which I just thought was funny. Anyway, yeah. So where so, we, yeah so, so so we got this extremely scientific right. plotting <laughs> plotting uh, uh, mechanism. What, what did the so that's what they're after? What did what did Google and, and any of these other tech companies have to say? Well, after Trump sent his couple of tweets about this, and this was before the lawsuit was actually filed, Google emphatically came out and said, "Like we don't rank search results to manipulate political yeah. sentiment. That's not something we do." Yeah. But then it's rolled out from there, where this like we're talking about this is all very problematic. I mean, it's just debatable about. What outlets are left-leaning? Which ones are right-leaning? Right. And when you start putting mainstream sites like AP and Reuters and every broadcast news station, um, when you start talking about them, they just produce such large amounts of content that's read and cited other places. And that itself could bump up how they rank in an algorithm used by one of these tech companies. Right. So... You know, it leads into some of what was discussed in the hearings you were talking about earlier, Alex, where... Google and others, they're not transparent about how the algorithms work. They don't just have a list of like, here, just look it over, see what we do. But there are things experts agree is very likely about how they work. Um, And those factors are what other people are searching for, what they're clicking on, the sites that are putting out content that's the freshest. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So that would lead you to believe that these big behemoth news organizations would rank very high. It doesn't matter if they're left or right leaning. It's just the the content type they're putting right. out. Yeah. What's interesting about this is it does rate, I mean, there there are like really interesting nuanced questions to ask about the way that 
a company as ubiquitous as Google in all of our lives handles information but they don't seem like they're they, they, these don't seem like those questions yeah they, you know that like or if they're even being asked in good faith yeah when, I, I mean don't... i did um also go to see if politifact that sort of ranks things as true or false yeah. um had looked into this and they had a really interesting article that where they went through this whole thing yeah. about that 96 percent study um and they rated it false for yeah. all the reasons we've talked about i've also seen politifact like Labeled as a like left wing advocate organization, sure. so depends on where you put them on that media. We'll, we'll see if that changes hearts and minds. And but. that gets to another thing that we, I mean, I feel like the theme of both of these is just how difficult these questions are to deal with because, yeah. you know, if you're labeling Politifact a left wing organization <laughs> and you're demanding equal size, you know, it's, it's a lot given, of subjective questions, and it's yeah, all yeah. given more um, life and fire because we have the president of the United States tweeting about a statistic yeah. from this, yeah. right? Well, anyway. I, I mean, I will. I definitely doubt that this uh, lawsuit will come to answer these questions, but it's definitely, you know, an interesting flashpoint of all this stuff. on D.C. this week as Brett Kavanaugh appeared before Congress for his confirmation hearings for a seat on the Supreme Court. Senior D.C. reporter Mike McInerney was on the scene, so we brought him on the show today to tell us what it was really like. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, glad to be here. Mike, I want to get into you being actually in the room because I think a lot of people probably watched bits and pieces of this playing out, but it seemed really chaotic, and I just want to hear your take on what it was like in those hearings. Yeah, so it was a uh, a four-day slog of um, Democrats and Republicans really not being happy with each other. Uh, several hundred protesters over the course of the day, uh, almost entirely against Kavanaugh, and uh, more than 25 hours of some really contentious questioning of the nominee himself um, over the course of two days of the hearing. So there were there was uh, high tempers on both sides for what's a, a, a really contentious nomination, and people have been unhappy with the the speed of the nomination, the process, uh, the nominee himself, the number of documents they got a, a access to, uh, you name it. People aren't happy about it. Well, you hit on an interesting point because a, th- a lot of what we heard about was this issue of documents of disclosures of the, the the you know the background information about Kavanaugh and Democrats weren't happy with what they got could he sort of set us up with what exactly their gripes were there yeah so Democrats haven't been happy with the amount of White House documents they got access to um, Kavanaugh served in the Bush White House as both White House counsel and later as staff secretary um, Republicans closed off entirely said they wouldn't get uh, staff secretary documents, and um, they have proceeded more quickly than Democrats would like in getting the White House counsel documents and moving forward with the hearing to the point that uh, there were 42,000 pages that were released to the committee the night before the hearing started. Ooh, right. That's crazy. Kind of what, what started off the hearing on a bad foot. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, did people in the hearings actually say that they'd poured through 42,000 documents or pages of documents? Uh, Now, Chairman Chuck Grassley did say that his staff was able to get through all of the documents, but Democrats said that, 
you know, they weren't able to before the hearing started, and they wanted to be able to have time to review all of these documents. And in in the background of this is that Democrats wanted to get more documents to try and illuminate uh, Judge Kavanaugh's views about a lot of controversial issues. And Republicans have said that Democrats are just trying to use the document issue to delay his confirmation, um, to hold him up and not confirm him to the court. Um, and Republicans have said that they're not going to tolerate that, and they want to move forward to try and get him confirmed by October 1st. Now, here, it, the, 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 the purposes of these hearings, Mike, as, as I don't need to tell you, is to understand the, the nominees' views on complex legal issues and cases that come before them. If you happen to tune in here, you are much more likely to see a lawmaker making a speech rather than <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh saying something. But uh, you're, you were there. We want to talk to you about some of the substantive stuff. So I presume they asked him about several controversial cases, and I think uh, a good place to start, um, and what was the subject of many of the protesters that you already mentioned, uh, was the issue of Roe versus Wade and reproductive rights. Um, so how did, the, how did the dialogue go there at the, uh, at the committee? Yeah, so he was pressed on that extensively um, about both uh, one of his D.C. Circuit opinions that's uh, dealt with abortion and also uh, some of his previous writings, as well as Democrats just trying to get him to say what he thought about the decision. Um, now, on that case, um, it's uh, the case from, I believe it was last year, about the undocumented minor who wanted to get an abortion. Exactly. And Democrats said that they thought that his reading of abortion rights was too restrictive. And Mike, a thing we heard a lot about was this idea of whether or not Roe was settled law, and that and there were some new things about what what Kavanaugh had said in the past about whether or not it was. Could you explain what happened there? Yeah, so this was a little twist on Thursday. There was an email that the New York Times got a hold of where Judge Kavanaugh, while he was at the Bush White House, suggested removing a line from a draft op-ed that the administration was going to publish that suggested saying, removing a line that said, uh, legal scholars think that Roe v. Wade is settled law. And in the hearing, he explained that as his understanding of legal scholars don't think Roe v. Wade is settled law because it could be overturned by five Supreme Court justices voting together. And Democrats have repeatedly pressed him on that issue precisely because he's joining the Supreme Court and could be one of five justices that over that votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. And uh, they questioned him repeatedly on Roe v. Wade, on uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood and other abortion cases. And the, he said that Roe is settled law. He said that uh, it is is precedent on precedent because it's been reaffirmed in cases like Casey. Yeah. And they really couldn't get him to go further than that. He said, you know, I'm a sitting judge. I'm going up for another judgeship. I really can't say how I'm going to rule on a particular case. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, it's double secret precedent. It's like the best precedent <laughs> you could yeah. have. Yeah, Even exactly. though he did that thing we all sort of expected and said that, I'm going to ask you about another hot button issue to see if he said anything more. Um, the one I want to ask about is gun control. What did he say about the Second Amendment and um, laws that could curtail gun rights? Yeah, so he said a, a good bit more on this subject, actually, because he's ruled on it uh, while at the D.C. Circuit. He uh, 
has a view of gun control rights, which some Democrats have said is outside of the mainstream, um, because uh, this is their claim that he doesn't take public safety into account mm-hmm. when balancing Second Amendment rights. Um, and Judge Kavanaugh, when he was pressed on this, uh, said that there are gun control measures that he thinks have uh, a, a roots in the history and tradition of the country, things like um, a machine gun bans, um, bans on felons owning firearms, fa- bans on um, people with uh, you know severe mental illnesses o- o- owning firearms, and uh, still he wouldn't go any further than that on how he you know, would view the Second Amendment in the future. And he also, you know, wouldn't say how he would vote on um, on Second Amendment cases going forward or things like an assault gun ban. We would be remiss, Mike, if we didn't talk about the Robert Mueller-shaped elephant in the room, uh, the other big uh, policy issue that, that hangs over so much of the political discourse today, and that is um, the reach of executive power, and specifically whether or not a president under investigation can be subject to the kinds of legal proceedings that everyday citizens are, whether it's being subpoenaed or being indicted or even just a, a civil or criminal action brought against the president. Um, I would imagine it was a it was a pretty popular topic of discussion this week, and he'd done some writing in the past that uh, created a lot of controversy. What did we hear this week? Yeah, so the reach of executive power has really been at the core of Kavanaugh's career. He started off um, one of his 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 first job after his Supreme Court clerkship was for. Kenneth Starr, the independent counsel who's investigating uh, President Bill Clinton. Um, And then he went to work in the Bush White House and dealt with executive power issues. And then on the D.C. Circuit, he's dealt with executive power issues. So he's written on this extensively, and he's been pressed on statements like he didn't think the Nixon-Watergate tapes Supreme Court decision might not have been correctly decided. Um, He said that he was incorrectly, that he was uh, kind of taken out of context or misquoted um, in that uh, statement. And he's also been pressed on issues like a law review article where he suggested that um, a a sitting president shouldn't be subject to uh, investigation or indictment. And in the, the hearing, he said, he noted that that was his policy suggestion to Congress, right. and also that he, what he was suggesting was a, a deferral of prosecution, but not an immunity. Um, but he repeatedly refused to answer questions on things like whether a president can pardon himself, or whether a president can uh, fire a special counsel and not be, have it be considered uh, obstruction of justice. Um, he uh, you know, repeatedly refused referred back to the Justice Department policy that a sitting president can't be indicted, but he wouldn't say, you know, whether he felt that that was, you know, binding law or right. whether that was, uh, you know, a constitutionally sound position. It seems like that, like that. It seems like that was one of the, the, the one of the sort of the, the themes here is that this idea of taking not answering questions to a to a true art form, which you know we've seen in recent years in in these Supreme Court well, yeah, confirmation it's, it's, hearings. Well, it's but, funny because like you 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 get them up there to learn about their views on these issues, and then for various legal and ethical reasons, they're like, well, I can't actually comment on specific cases or even hypothetical cases that you present. Right, to it's me. not even certain. It's 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 a blanket. I know. I cannot speak to to any of this. So I, it seems like yeah. an odd, it's an odd paradox. <laughs> yeah. I think the more interesting part, though, is that. 
this is perhaps the first time a Supreme Court nominee has been questioned about things like, hey, can the president pardon himself? Right. I mean, right. it's just a really unique time in history. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Mike, where are we in terms of uh, going forward? Like, we all saw this unraveling, but I think the listeners might not know exactly procedurally where we are in the confirmation process. Set us up going forward. Yeah. So over the next couple of weeks, he's going to be answering written questions from the senators and follow up. And there's a procedural process because it's the Senate. There's a procedural process in the committee before he goes for a vote. Um, He's going to go for a final vote as soon as September 30th. um, And he could be confirmed as soon as a couple of days after that. Um, And right now, Republicans have 52 seats in the chamber. And there are you know, just a handful of holdouts that haven't said how they're going to vote yet. Um, and it's, you know, remains to be seen over the next couple of days how they're going to come down now that the hearing is done. Mike, thanks for breaking that down. We'll all be watching this together. Um, really appreciate you explaining everything to us. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be on. We don't have a ton of time, but we, we can't pass up a quick offbeat. And Bill, I know you have a really good one for us. It's a very good one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, okay, so I'm no criminal. Uh, Glad we got that on the record. <laughs> but I think, if I, I, think if I was going to start breaking, you know, breaking the law in, in a long sort of methodical years long effort. <laughs> Uh, involving many victims and a and a serious digital paper trail. Please con- please continue with this hypothetical. I wouldn't use my own name. I'm just saying. <laughs> right, uh, right. Nobody told that to Paul Gonzalez. Okay. Uh, the famous Los Angeles Dine and Dash dater. Okay. Oh, I uh, love that moniker. Who is facing a preliminary hearing this week on charges that he ditched ten different dates for a combined one thousand dollars in restaurant tabs. All right. Uh. Okay. I'm intrigued. Tell yep. us more. So. According to prosecutors, Gonzalez went on a string of dates over a period of two years with women that he met on dating apps, and each time he left before the waiter came back with the check. He would get the, it was sort of the same thing every time. He would get super charmy, and he would order a, just like a, a stunning amount of food. And then, <laughs> and then come up with, once he had eaten, he would come up with an excuse. Like he, he had like a, someone who was calling him, or he had to go to the bathroom or whatever. And then he would just disappear. Um, wait, wait. Is he leaving the women on the hook for the check? Are they still sitting at the table? Yeah. So in eight oh, of the cases, on. the women paid for for the the check. And in <laughs> two of the cases, the restaurant, I guess, felt bad and just ate the charge. Sure. They're like, <laughs> like, I don't know where this guy is. But so what's crazy here is that before he got caught, um, uh, he had already become sort of famous. That during the two years famous that this was going what? on, this story was picked up by a bunch of different L.A. outlets. It was picked up by the l- local CBS station and by Eater. Um, he became famous for doing this? Yes, infamous. and what's most nuts is that he was using his real name and picture on these <sighs> dating apps. So <laughs> as early as 2016, uh, CBS had a story that was like all about this, and it detailed this serial dating ditcher guy terrorizing the women of LA. Had his name, had his picture. Like <laughs> That's what makes it so sadistic, because like dining and dashing is definitely something you could just do by yourself. Or do it with the other person. I'm not saying you should ever dine and dash. It's mean no. to your waiter and it's mean to everybody but it else. Is, but it adds this layer of like, dating's hard enough. This guy yes. this then... guy saw Bonnie and Clyde and was like, Bonnie is holding this guy back, <laughs> obviously. And look, I go on dating app dates sometimes and sometimes <laughs> okay. you feel the urge to leave, but always leave money. Leave so, some money. So I have to say this from, you know, just a quality standpoint. 
sometimes women do pick up the tab for dates. So how sure. exactly is he on the hook um, for legal charges over this? Well, because the implicit, I mean, the implicit agreement when you go out to eat with someone is that you're going to split the bill. If you, at, if at the it, very least. At the very least, you are on the hook for what you ordered versus right. what, I mean, but so. Okay. Well, anyway, what's what what's he looking at here Charge-wise. He's facing seven counts of extortion, two counts of attempted extortion, um, uh, grand theft, and two misdemeanor counts of defrauding grand an innkeeper. Grand theft? That's a lot yes. of food. I'm sorry. Run run that last one back. Uh, two misdemeanor counts of defrauding an innkeeper, an which innkeeper. I guess in <laughs> California law is... is No, I know. There's like those parochial terms. So that's very he could funny to me. serve up to 13 years in prison. Oh, my God. I really like this story in the context of this show, because earlier in the show, <laughs> we, talked about, we talked about how the State Farm thing is kind of like a John Grisham novel. Yeah. I like the idea of this being like sort of a, like a wedding crashers story. Oh, like, sure. 100%. You know, like like dating dashers, uh, like the, the I don't know, like the yeah, like, that's nice. Yeah, uh, oh, he thought he was just halfway through, just finding love and then getting arrested for leaving ten other women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what awaits our friend Paul here? Uh, he's got an arraignment, uh, or no, sorry, he was arraigned already okay. um, uh, on the 25th, and he pleaded not guilty, and he's got a preliminary hearing tomorrow. Nice. Not so, guilty. Uh, to the hilt. On, on Friday the 7th, so right. uh, stay tuned. Check, please. <laughs> That'll wrap up today's packed show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Michael McInerney, and our contributing reporters, RJ Vote, Cara Salvatore, Jimmy Hoover, and Kelsey Griffiths. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. And we'd love for you to leave us a review. Go to iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks, and see you again next week.